I'm looking forward to this morning's message. I think that I'll probably say some things that um, are not controversial as such, um, but uh, may not have been emphasized, or you may not have heard emphasized from the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to be talking about the church and how central the church is to God's plan. Um, So let's start with a word of prayer. We'll do a quick review, and then we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and goodness, and we just pray, Lord, that you will open our minds to understanding, that you will give us wisdom and guidance, that you will speak through me and to the people that are here with me. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so on Friday morning, we basically covered the history of redemption in 10 verses. And we saw that humanity had been hijacked by Satan and that God's plan was to break into the hijacked territory and rescue captive humanity. And in that, we found the language of inheritance, we found the language of new earth, we found the language of new creation. And this is the model that the New Testament uses to talk about salvation. And so we, you know, usually can grapple with these verses pretty well. But what we're going to see this morning, hopefully, is that for Paul, this idea of redemption, this cosmic redemption, translates almost immediately into a corporate experience. And for us in our society, uh, Western society, and I think our church has kind of bought into it, I think most Christian churches have actually, uh, is that we kind of tend to have a very individualistic view of society. And we, we prize ourselves based on our independence and our ability to do things on our own and our self-sufficiency. And, um, you know, this comes from... Lockean philosophy uh, that was introduced uh, from Britain into uh, American society. And uh, it, it, you know, reveals itself in political debates, and it also reveals itself in theological perspectives. And oftentimes when it comes to salvation, we also have a very individualistic view of what it means to have a relationship with God. We say things like, God doesn't save groups, and, you know, he saves individuals, and God is not saving organizations. We have to come to God individually, and there's certainly a strong element of truth to that, that uh, I'm not saved just by putting my name on the books. But the truth that uh, I want to hone in on today is that We may not be saved in communities, but we are saved in two communities. And uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, even though I think it's largely been lost sight of, it's being restored gradually, the major emphasis, the major framework of thought was that of the covenant. And uh, Winston has shared this at length uh, in his presentations on Hebrews. And the covenant was not simply about God selecting random individuals here and there to go do uh, their own private work for him. 
The covenant was about God selecting a people group. And that as a people group, they were going to glorify and demonstrate the name of God. So let's look here at the first uh, three verses of our passage for this morning. We'll begin with verse 11. We'll read to verse 13. We'll do some background and then we'll move forward. Therefore, now remember uh, Ephesians 2. Sorry, I, I, I guess I didn't mention it. Ephesians 2, uh, 11 through 22 is going to be our passage, our main passage for this morning. Uh, the first, uh, first word there is, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, what is that time? He says, remember that you at that time were separated. What is that time that he's referring to? It's right here in uh, Ephesians 2, the first uh, portion of the passage that we looked at Friday morning when he talks about their estrangement and their bondage to Satan. So he's saying at that time, when you were indulging in the flesh and in the desires of the mind, when you were being led about by the spirit of this age, when you were following in sync with the course of this world, at that time you were separate from the commonwealth of Israel. So the point is there that their spiritual disunion with God, also uh, a part of that was their social disunion with the people of God. They were separate from Israel. They were separate from the community. And if you look at some of the things he mentions there, the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants of promise, and then he also hones in on having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, see, this is part of his proclamation. It's not simply that now in Christ Jesus you have justification or you have spiritual renewal. It's now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were afar off have been brought near. So on the one hand, we've been reconciled to God uh, in a vertical spiritual renewal, but we've also been reconciled horizontally, if you will, into the community, into the people of God. And just to set up some background to this on, on how this works out in the big picture, the, the two classes that are being distinguished here are the Gentiles and who else? The Jews. And as we read it today, I think sometimes we get stuck and we don't know how to practically apply it. So immediately we say that the Jews are conservatives and the Gentiles are liberals, or we try to come up with some kind of spiritual application. But the issue here is, in reality, an ethnic division. Okay? And uh, as it applies for Paul in the first century, and I'll talk about what that means. The, this divide took place and began in Genesis chapter 12. Now, what happened in Genesis chapter 12? Amen. Abraham receives the call. Now, up to this point, there had been people of God. But with the call of Abraham, 
there was a, a step that was taken in the process for distinguishing the people of God from the people of the world. And that step that was taken created an ethnic distinction. Okay? And there was one particular sign that was used to make that distinction. And what was that? Circumcision. And so Abraham was called, and God said that he would bless him, and he would make his name great, and that all the nations, all the what? What's another word for nations? All the Gentiles, or all the nations, in you would be what? Or in your seed. And Paul argues that out in uh, Galatians 3, which is a wonderful passage. Uh, I wish we had time to go there. But at this point, you now have this distinction between the people of God and the people of the world, but it actually is now a national ethnic distinction. And it's true we know retrospectively that being a part of Israel didn't necessarily make you an Israelite, and that, yes, there are Gentiles who responded to all the life that they had, and so therefore, you know, they were, their consciences are, are going to approve themselves, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. But as far as the visible church is concerned, there was a distinction between the nation of Israel and the Gentiles around them, just like it is for us today. We know that not everyone who calls himself a Seventh-day Adventist is converted, and not everyone who is a part of the, the, the religious traditions outside is a child of Satan. They just may not have all the light, and they may be walking according to all the light that they have, and when God reveals more to them, they jump on board like I did, and, uh, and, and they follow through. So the, uh, trying to create some similarities to help it kind of stick in the mind, that it, there was certainly, though, a distinction at that time between Jews and Gentiles. And in order to become part of the people of God in the truest sense, one had to not only convert spiritually, but one had to take upon himself the markers of a Jew. And so Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And they had to participate in all of the moral and ceremonial aspects of the religious service. Are you with me? Okay. Now, Israel was set apart for what purpose primarily? To be a light. What does that mean? Absolutely, to be teachers. When Paul talks about uh, to glorify God, when Paul talks about what the advantage of the Jew was in Romans chapter 3, he says much in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, if I entrust you with a letter, I expect you to deliver that letter for me. And the oracles of God, that's the divine revelation of God. So they were entrusted with the divine revelation of God. It was the task of the people as a people. And that's the point that I want to really drive home throughout this talk. It's as a people, not as scattered individuals who sometimes choose to get together and have Bible study and prayer. As a united people group, they were supposed to take the message of God to the Gentiles. All right. So what Paul's saying, though, and for us, it's, it, I've wrestled with it. How can I you know, understand the significance? Because for Paul, it's, 
it's dynamic, it's revolutionary. In chapter 3, he calls it the mystery that's been revealed, that now Gentiles are accepted as being the people of God as Gentiles in Christ. Okay, so the best way that I can illustrate this is this would be akin to a former Ku Klux Klan member or a white supremacist going back into his community of white supremacists and declaring triumphantly that all people of color are now accounted as being the superior race in their own skin. Can you imagine how that would rock that community? So for, for, for Paul in the first century, that's basically what he was saying, is that we've prided ourselves on being Jews, we've prided ourselves on being distinct, we've prided ourselves on being separate and having circumcision and having the inheritance, but now Gentiles, without becoming circumcised, without taking on the ceremonial practices, they are the people of God as they stand. And the only thing that accounts them as being the people of God or would disqualify them from it is their relationship with Jesus or their lack thereof. And for Paul, the thing that the, the uh, prism or the lens that he looks through to see this new reality of what it means to be the people of God is the cross. And so the cross... As we'll see, I think it's pretty clear, once you take away the spiritualization of the passage, is that for the cross, for Paul, the cross is not only about reconciling us to God, but is about reconciling us to one another. Notice here, beginning in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He's not here saying, first, he's not strictly saying that he's our peace between us and God. He's saying between Jew and Gentile. Who made both into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, which is almost identical language to Colossians 2, which is clearly talking about those things that were particularly, as our old Adventist pioneers would say, particularly Jewish. It's not talking about the moral law. The things that separate us morally are appropriate. Uh, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new what? And the word there for man is generic, and it's humanity. And we've talked a lot about dehumanization and rehumanization. And so understand that God made a promise at the very beginning, right after the fall, that uh, there was going to be enmity between these two great classes of people. And uh, humanity became more and more wicked up to the point of the flood. And then afterwards, it got right back together. 
and they formed a confederation to build the Tower of Babel. And what was God's solution to that problem? To do what? To confuse the languages. And when he confused the languages, that necessarily created what kind of division? Well, I mean, what kind, if all of us in here, with the snap of our finger, with the snap of God's finger, uh, started speaking different languages, would we be able to communicate? And if five he- people here had the same language, and ten people there had the same language, and ten people back there had the same language, but they were all different from one another, it would create different social, cultural groups. But at the beginning... God created humans to be a united social group. And immediately after the Tower of Babel, when God divides humanity up, he calls Abraham and basically says that in you, I'm going to pull humanity back together. But it's going to be a renewed humanity. It's going to be a humanity according to the image of God as they were in Genesis chapter 1. So when Paul says that he wants, that is Christ, to make both groups into one new humanity, you got to bring all that, that whole story with you. And notice it's the cross that does it because at the cross, the new covenant was ratified and the old covenant was made obsolete. And we could spend a number of presentations on the covenants, but you know, usually as a people, we just talk about the law and the fact that the law still applies. I mean, that's pretty much our major burden when we talk about the covenants, a lot of the time. But this uh, corporate element is actually essential to what the covenant meant for Paul and the New Testament believers in that the national contract, the covenant with Israel as a nation, as a circumcised distinct people group was made obsolete and in its place, the church would now be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles who are qualified as the people of God based on their faith in Jesus. Is that clear? In verse 16, he brings the two into one new humanity. And then in verse 16, it says, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. And by it, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. That's Jews and Gentiles. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And, you know, someone asked me, do I, do I even think that people are still racist? Of course. I mean, as long as there's human nature and pride, there's going to be racism and prejudice, and it, it may be nationalism. You know, the point is that we as a people naturally pride ourselves and our people and our class and our group above the next. It's just natural. And the only thing to truly diminish it, 
to get rid of that, to uproot that, is the Spirit of God. You can put education in the classrooms all you want and try to train people's minds to think different about social issues. But if you truly want love and unity, then uh, we need the Spirit of God. Now, our, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I should ask. I was going to say something about um, sometimes we institutionalize these kind of cultural and ethnic divisions, but I don't know if that's uh, within the guidelines of conversation. So, uh, so here's the thing. If you, uh, I just got approval, so I can talk about it a little bit. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was speaking subliminally to her. I, I was using code there. Uh, in Galatians, one of Paul's major points that he's trying to drive home uh, is the fact that, let me, let me restart, let me say it this way. The problem that Paul was addressing historically in Galatians chapter 2 was the fact that Peter was fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And then when the other Jews came from Jerusalem, he got scared and he pulled away from them. Okay? And uh, so in Galatians 3, you have Paul's crowning argument where he says that if you are Abraham's seed, you are heirs according to the promise. Slave, free, male and female, Jew and Greek. And people will say, oh, well, that passage is talking about salvation. Beloved, this is the point. We are saved into a united community. The issue that Paul was addressing with Peter was not legalism. It was the fact that he stopped eating with the Gentiles. He stopped having fellowship with the Gentiles. And we may denounce that, but in the way we set up our institutions, we affirm it. That there is some kind of distinction between black and white. Or between, you know, now there's language barriers sometimes with some ethnic, you know, groups. And obviously, we need to accommodate that as a people. But for two people groups to speak the same language and to have lived in the same country for over 100 years or 150 years, I don't know if you want to call what happened before that living, but the point is that for us to have been brought up in the same place, speaking the same language and having essentially, there are differences, but basically, in many ways, the same culture or the same cultural understanding, and to institutionalize the separation is, is, is atrocious. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of political arguments. I don't, you know, there's fear and there's mistrust there. And... Uh, so we need to be sensitive to why people would not want to do that. But the bottom line is that if you ever go into leadership in the church, I would encourage you to make that an issue worth tackling. All right? Um, now, in, here in uh, verse 19 and so forth, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole building being fitted together is doing what? Growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. And the point that I think we need to draw for this, from this is that the people of God is a maturing community, a growing community. And a part of this growth includes unity on the one hand and mission on the other. And my time is running short, so I have to kind of bird's eye view. But in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 1 through 6, he says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. The very next thing he says is that we are to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the reason he uses the word strive or endeavor in the King James is because, as you and I know, unity is challenging to maintain especially with our self-centeredness. So the call is to strive to maintain the unity with all humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance. Putting up with one another, as the Greek says. Bearing with one another's burdens. There's one body, one spirit, one God, one hope. And so as this vision of what God wants to do consumes our minds, it will draw us together. But then next he goes on to talk about the mission of the church, the offices of the church, and the purpose of those offices. In verse 11, it says, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? Verse 12 says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry which is fascinating there, the purpose of the leaders in that passage is to train. And that's what it says. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so the idea that we have here is that on the one hand, we have to be united in vision. We need to be united in heart, which will come from that. And then we need to be united in service. Now I can bring this up again. We want to help you to be involved that way. And so if you want to become practically involved in ministry and receive some resources and some networking that will help you do that, fill your name out, your address, and your ministry passion, and put it in the box outside. And we can make this vision a reality. Now, I want to close on this point. Can I have two or three more minutes? Ephesians chapter 3. This is where I want to drive it home. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about God rescuing captive humanity from the grip of Satan. All right? When humanity was captured by Satan... 
the image of God in them was distorted. I need you to track with me at every stage in this, in this development. Paul's language of renewal is that of new creation. And as he discusses that renewal, he explicitly refers to Genesis chapter 1, and he says that we are being recreated in the image of God. Okay. Now, if we're created in the image of God, that also means by necessity that we reflect God. We're image bearers. We look like God. Paul changes his focus and hones in on the communal dimension where he says that through the unifying of Jew and Gentile, God is creating one new humanity. Okay? So if you sum that up, you have Jews and Gentiles who are both being rescued from Satan, being put into a united people group, and that united people group is morally transformed into the image of God and is called the new humanity, which means that they would serve essentially the same function that they were intended to at the beginning. Are you with me? Take all that with you if you can. And let's, uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll see how Paul works this out in its cosmic context. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for your sake, that by revelation there was made known to me the what? The mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul is basically saying in these verses that his personal mission corresponds to the pulling back of the curtain of God's plans for his people. It corresponds to the unveiling of the mystery. Which, in verse 5, referring to the mystery, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been unveiled to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he's saying that mystery, the prophets didn't, really totally understand how God was going to work out his plans for his people, but they kind of had some of it down. Paul's saying, now that mystery has been unveiled by the Spirit. We see the plan in Christ Jesus. To be specific, the New American Standard Bible adds here in verse 6, that, here's the mystery, you ready for it? The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, when I first read that, I said, what? That's the mystery? You know, we go around searching and trying to come up with something that's dynamic and powerful. and stimul The Gentiles are now a part of the church? That's, that's the big deal? But when you understand that within the larger framework that we just set up, this means everything. What this means is that the promises that God made to Abraham and to the people of God, that he would eventually bless them as a people, and that 
Through them he would exalt his name before earth, and the cosmos is now being worked out. The renewed humanity is now being created in Christ Jesus. He says that it's through the gospel that the Gentiles and the Jews are united into this single renewed humanity. Verse 7, of which I was made a minister, the gospel he's referring to, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the who? Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration or the service or the ministry that results from the mystery which has for ages been hidden in God who created all things. So that now. So let's summarize again, because he's wordy, so I, I, have, you know, I have to summarize and then go back to the point. In Christ, new humanity is being created. Jews and Gentiles coming into a single body, being renewed into the image of God. And Paul says, we've been waiting for this for ages. This has been a mystery. What is the purpose, Paul? That's the question he's about to answer. What is the purpose of this new humanity, of this united people group? So that, in verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The church as a church, the people as the people, the community as the community, the new humanity is essential and vital. Yea, its purpose is for the manifestation of God's wisdom before the cosmos. Now, if that vision and that privilege doesn't grip your mind, I don't know what will. But God wants us to live, not, not simply as individuals. Yes, we need to have our individual, personal relationship with God. But God wants us to come together and grab hold of this idea of being the new covenant people of God, of being the new humanity. And when we do that, in both the form of unity and united mission, God will fully be able to demonstrate his own wisdom before all those who are beholding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and goodness, and we pray that you will please lift our minds up. Help us to grab a hold of this great thing you want to do in and through us. We ask this all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.